Welcome to the Compass Church Podcast with Pastor Tim Jacobs, a ministry of Compass Church, Goodyear, Arizona. Join us now as we look into God's Word to be challenged and changed. How are you doing? It's like, it's not really Mr. It's like a cross between Mr. Rogers and Kramer, I think, the way I walked in the door. But it's okay because it is a beautiful day in the neighborhood, and I am so glad to be with you, boys and girls. You know, the tag is still on this sweater. You know, boys and girls, when you're done with an article of clothing and you still have the tag, you can send it back. <clears throat> we'll have to remember that. Uh, just kidding. Anyway, so it's great to see you all, and we are starting a new, oh, I'm supposed to sit on the bench too, that's what I'm supposed to do. We're starting a new series called, Won't You Be My Neighbor? And so actually, if you have a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 10, and uh, starting I think somewhere in verse 30 something, you'll see it, and uh, we'll get there in a moment, but it's really great to see you guys, and I'm super excited about this series that we're going to be doing. In fact, what I want to talk to you about today, more than anything else, is I want to give you one simple word because, you know, with Mr. Rogers, it was always really simple and, and very easy for anyone to understand. So today, I just want to give you one word, and the one word is this, compassion. Can y'all say compassion? I knew that you could. <laughs> okay, let's dive into this whole thing that we have going on here. Because there's a, uh, a wonderful story we're going to look at in the book of Luke chapter 10, where the theme is compassion. And some of us might be thinking, oh boy, compassion. That's the last thing that I want to talk about because I have no compassion. Well, if that's you, then you're in good company because I, even though I'm wearing this wonderful sweater, I struggle with compassion as well. So we're like going to get through this story together. However, this is an amazing story and it all starts with a simple conversation between Jesus and a guy who was trying to outsmart him which is always a bad move when you try to outsmart Jesus. And this guy happens to be a lawyer. And I never pick on lawyers because my father was a lawyer. He's just retired. He spent 40 years as a lawyer, and he was an honest lawyer. And I know a lot of people think that's an oxymoron, but it's true. He really did a great job. And, no, you know, so anyway, but this guy is a lawyer, and he's not such a great lawyer. He's maybe good at what he does, but he's kind of a bad guy. Because he, he's an expert, not, not necessarily in the law per se, like in the, like what we would know as a governmental law, but in Jewish law and Jewish customs. And so he comes to Jesus with a question, which is a valid question. And the question is, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Now, it's a legitimate question, and it's a question that you should be asking. I mean, think about this. When your heart stops beating, and it will someday, what are you going to do? Have you ever even thought that through? Well, I'm going to go to heaven. Why? Because I'm a good person. Based on what? Your own evaluation? So it's a really, really good question that he's asking. And so the problem is it's asked with bad motives. And so Jesus turns the question back on him, because he's good at that stuff too. And he says, well, 
what do you think? Because he says, well, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus goes, well, what do you think about it? What, what do you, from all of your knowledge, what do you think is the answer? And he goes, well, I think what it is, is you got to love God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. And then you love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, you live a life of compassion. That's what you do. And if you do that, according to the law, you will inherit eternal life. And Jesus says something really powerful. You know, almost like you could see him in this sage kind of role. He says, you have answered correctly. And then he says these words, do this and you will live. Now that's huge. Do this and you will live. In other words, if you want to crack the code, if you want to know how to successfully move from this life to the next, if you want to capture the essence of what God thinks is right behavior, then have compassion and love your neighbor as yourself. You do that and you'll live. So there's something about the way that we treat our neighbors that reveals more about us than almost anything else. In the military, we would call this a major graded area. Like this is a big deal. Like you will be evaluated based on your ability to do that. Now we know that we're saved by grace, but and we know that you got to come to an understanding of your sin and forgiveness and all that stuff, but how does a person really know that they've achieved that understanding? Well, the only way is to evaluate what a person does in terms of response to that, right? And so this, this major graded area is one of compassion, and so we have to step back and absorb all of this. And so the key word for us is compassion. So the lawyer now, this is bad news for him because he doesn't want to love his neighbor because that's hard and it's a pain and, and my neighbors are stupid, you know, and they're annoying and they're difficult and they're frustrating and it takes work. So he, being a lawyer, he looks for a loophole. It's brilliant, actually. He asks the question then, well, in fact, the scripture literally says, but he desiring to justify himself. In other words, desiring to excuse himself from not loving his neighbor because who wants to do that? He says to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Classic lawyer move, right? We got to figure out what the meaning of the word is, is. Some of you know that reference. But not only that, but in the ancient Jewish book known as Sirach, there was an instruction for people not to help sinners, so if all we got to do now, if we, can, if we can just get him to say that, then we can tie the whole thing up in court, right? Because, because if it gets tied up in court, we don't have to move because now what we have to do is if we can figure out some way to evaluate whether a person is my neighbor, some sort of code of conduct, then I can apply my neighbor to this code of conduct and he's going to fail every time in some way or another because everybody knows that. So then I'm off the hook. How do I know if the person's a good person or not? Maybe I'm helping a bad guy. Maybe I'm helping a terrible person. Maybe I'm helping someone who doesn't deserve it. It's a good question. So he asks the question, who is my 
neighbor. And the idea, as, as one guy put it, what must a person do to be qualified as my neighbor? That's the question. I'll love my neighbor, but, but what, do you, what does my neighbor have to do to actually be my neighbor? That's, that's what he's getting at. It's very, very smart. These are not stupid people that are having this conversation. No, Jesus, who's a pretty smart guy too, responds with a story. And he talks about a story where he says, look, there was a road. It's a very dangerous road, more dangerous than I-10 in the morning. Stretches about the length of Compass Church to I-17. So it's about 17 miles of this road. But it's not a wide road. It's a narrow road, and it's windy, and it's harrowing. It's the road between Jerusalem and Jericho. So it descends over 3,000 feet because Jerusalem's built on a hill, and Jericho is like 800 feet below sea level. So you kind of have to go down like this. And you know, when you're going down and there's hills and it's, there's shadows, you know, because of these steep turns and whatever else. And so along the trail, not only are there physical dangers uh, from, or t territorial dangers from the terrain, but there's also dangers lurking because along the road, everybody knew because it was an often traveled route that there were people hiding out in the caves, in the crags, and in all the different areas who would attack the travelers, especially the vulnerable ones. So it was a very high probability of getting attacked. And Jesus says, hey, look, one day there was a guy walking from this journey that everybody, it's as common as going down 10 freeway, right? Everybody would know about this when he was talking about it. And he says, in fact, he did get attacked, and these guys robbed him and beat him up so bad and then left him for dead. Now, we don't know anything about this guy. It's a false, it's a made-up character that Jesus is like a made-up guy, but he, Jesus doesn't give us any details about him, and that's very, very important. We know nothing about this person's character or anything else, just that he's a human being that got beat up on the road and left for dead. And by the way, that's kind of the point, by the way. It's just that we don't know anything about him. It's very, very important. So who's my neighbor? Well, it could be anyone. However, everyone else in the story we begin to find out a little bit about. So this guy's laying there, and he's like half dead. And, and so he says a couple guys walk by. There are these passers-by who, who pass by. Now the first guy is a priest, and he's a Jewish priest who would have been at the top of the heap in terms of intellect, leadership capacity, and social standing. A Jewish priest doesn't get any better than that in terms of righteousness and goodness and honor and all this kind of stuff. He would have been seen as extremely close to God and always being able to do the right thing in any given situation. So you think this is our victim's lucky day, right? He's laying there dead, but a priest comes by. And Jesus says, well, what happens is the priest comes by and he walks right past him. Now this is kind of hard too, because this isn't like, you know, in fact, he says he crosses to the other side. Now it's not like a stray parkway, you know, where you, have, you know, there's a big thing with an island in the middle and you walk across the crosswalk or you, it's like, you know, you, I couldn't tell. No, the road is very narrow. So he, you kind of get the idea that he doesn't really have to get very far, but he's clearly going out of his way to make sure that he doesn't have to touch this guy or get near him. Now, there's no reason given for why he walked by a dying man in great need, so we shouldn't really speculate on it, but you know, some people say, well, maybe, you know, he was, uh, the, the priest might not have to touch, or they might be allowed to touch a dead guy. They thought it was dead. You, priests aren't supposed to touch a dead guy or whatever. But there's no excuse given. 
He just walked right past him. He sees him. It's not like he has an excuse of like, oh, I don't know if that's a game. He's sleeping or whatever. No, he knows. He can see. But he walks across to the other side of the road. Next comes another guy known as a Levite. Now, these guys were the assistants to the priest. They were the ones that were like in charge of the temple operations. And again, very respectable characters. People that you would assume would do the right thing if given the chance. But the Levite also goes to the other side of the road and walks by and does nothing. Again, no details are given why. There's no excuse made. But what's happening is the tension in the story is here is a dying man in need of help. We have no idea anything about him other than he needs help. And two of the society's best people have just walked past. So you'd think at this point that all is lost. I mean, if a priest isn't going to help him and a Levite's not going to help him, no one is going to help this guy except the third character who walks by in the story whom Jesus presents as a Samaritan. Now, Samaritans were not like priests or Levites. In fact, in the Jewish mind, they were exactly the opposite. It's hard to properly capture how much the Samaritans were despised by the Jews. It's like it goes back hundreds of years, this hatred, because of it's really like a racial thing that goes back, and, and they have all this history, and the children were raised up to kind of like hate the other person, you know? So it's really, really extreme, and there's no, there's no real way to properly, truly capture the essence of it, except to just like, I don't know, if we, if we went the political route, and, and you just say, okay, if you're a Democrat, um, the Samaritan would be someone walking by like wearing a Make America Great hat, you know what I mean? Like someone like that again. How could a person like that do anything good with their life, right? Or, you know, if you're a Republican, it would be like, you know, Nancy Pelosi walking by, right? So, like, these are unpopular characters in the minds of the person hearing the story, right? So, so this doesn't do well for a harmonious existence between these two groups, what was going on. And so Jesus presents a Samaritan. And it's particularly brutal for our lawyer to hear that it's the Samaritan who's about to do what happens here. So and then it says in verse 33, a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. What? Wait a second. They're not supposed to have compassion. These guys are not supposed, these are the worst people in the world. I hate these people. They're not supposed to have compassion on anybody. Now, by the way, when you say compassion, it's the same word that Jesus is said to have for people who are spiritually lost. It's the same kind of pity and sympathy that God has on us. And so he's moved, this guy, this Samaritan has moved in his heart for this man's predicament. In fact, it's interesting, the word compassion is the same word as like entrails or intestines. And because the idea is that your, the, the, the seat of your um, emotions, as it's called, lies in your heart or in your gut. Like this is where you live. Like, you don't really live here. You live here in the Jewish mind. And so to have compassion is literally like the inside of you takes pity on a person who is in a bad situation. He's the first one of the group 
that Jesus says, does such a thing. So then it says, to the, so what does he do? It says, well, he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. That's how they did first aid back then. They didn't have, you know, like 911 and whatever. Um, and by the way, this is costly stuff. This is costly stuff. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I get back. Now we get to the kicker. Because this really the story is about the contrast of two questions, right? The first question is what the lawyer asked. Who is my neighbor? But that's not the question Jesus wanted to answer. The question that Jesus wanted to answer is, he asked to the guy, is based on the three people that I just mentioned. Who was the neighbor to the man? You have to understand how infuriating this kind of thing would have been to this highly trained, sophisticated know-it-all kind of a guy. Because he's just had everything turned back on him. So Jesus says, look, the question is not, who is my neighbor? The question is, who was the neighbor to the person who needed one the most? And it's so funny because, because I mean, you would have paid like at least 10 bucks to just be a fly on the wall in that situation, right? Because you could just hear, his response is classic. You could almost hear him going, the sm, right? The sm, he doesn't want to say the word like sm. So he says this, the one who showed him mercy. He can't bring himself to say the Samaritan. So he has to say, because that's how infuriating it would be. The last person you thought, the person you thought was the worst person in the world was actually the one that Jesus elevated as the hero of the story. So then Jesus, in his mic drop fashion, says, great, now you go and do likewise. You just do that. Just go do that. And that's the end of the story. So, so like, so here's the thing. I, 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 I read this, and you've heard, many of you have heard this story before. Some version of it, you know. And I thought, okay, well, what do we do with this? Because the first thing we have to do is we have to color outside the lines a little bit. Especially for those of you who've been in church for a long time. Because we believe that it says in the book of Acts and elsewhere, it says, there's salvation or being made right with God is found in nowhere else um, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So, so there's no other name under heaven which people can be saved. So we are not a people that believe, well, you know, as long as you believe something in your heart, um, then you, you know, and you really believe it, then, then you're good. No, we don't believe that God is a schizophrenic, that he gives 50 different ways for people to come to him because um, usually those other ways are really treacherous and terrible and unclear and everything else. Um, and God gives us grace. No, we believe that salvation is found or being made, or made right with God is found one way, with Jesus, right? So, 
But here's the problem. A lot of people will say in a formulaic fashion, especially in Christianity in America, will go, well, I accepted Jesus when I was three, which means, you know, they said, look, if you pray this prayer, we'll give you a donut. <laughs> I, want, I want a donut. I want Jesus. Yeah, I might go tell my mom and dad. and They'll go, yeah, you accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior when you were three years old. And that's why they all backslide. Like, yeah, I mean, I tell you, like people, they talk about their testimony. They go, well, I was three years old. I went to church and I, I received Jesus as my Lord and Savior. But by 10, man, I was a menace. Well, yeah, you were, because like, that's what kids do, right? So what happens is you think that Christianity is about saying words and assenting to a, a mental understanding of how the world works, right? When it says in relation to God and everything else. And all of a sudden, this should rock you a little bit, because Jesus goes, look, if you want to live, you love your neighbor, now, he's not saying it doesn't matter what you believe in your heart about Jesus, but this should really kick some of us who think that as long as I think the right thoughts about God, I'll be fine. Ooh. Did you hear what I just said? Did you, hear, did you hear what I, like, this is the part that took Mr. Rogers here and threw him against the wall, this part of the scripture. You think the right thoughts about God, and you're good. No, 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 no. Because Jesus says, do this and you will live. Do what? Well, love God, yeah, but love your neighbor. Now, there are people then who will not always fit in your little box, our box. And that's going to that's gonna weird some of you out because like, well, that person like, you know, you're going to go to heaven someday and you're going to see people go, what are they doing here? Like seriously, like I was like, I didn't. Am I? Are we? Is this really heaven? You know, did I go? This, am I in the wrong place? Because um, why are you here, right? And, and you're gonna think that. How did that? I never saw this person at church. Or when I did, you know, or when I heard about them, they just seem a little rough around the edges. But you don't know what's going on in that person's heart. And by the way, as far as God's concerned, He saw behavior that indicated faith. Maybe you didn't, but he did. So the most hated person has the one thing that is everything, and that is mercy and compassion. Now I got to tell you, we got to deal with this because we have to get this in our consciousness as a church. See, the whole reason we're doing this series is because we got to rattle the cages a little bit here as, as Compass Church, and, and we have to begin to become people. Well, I said begin because I think we're doing this, but I think we once again need to turn our eyes outward. We need to turn our eyes outward, and we need to see hurting people. Not just people laying there physically on the side of the road. Because if you see someone laying physically on the side of the road, you don't need to go dump a bunch of wine on them and put them on a mule and take them over to the Hampton Inn. That was a different time. You, you call 911, right? That's what you do if you see like a person laying dead on the road. You call 911 and if you know CPR, you help them out that way, whatever, right? But that's not the point of the story. The point is there is hurt out there. Now this is really huge because see, God says in Hosea chapter six, verse six, this is the Old Testament. So it's been around for a long time. God says, for I desire what? Mercy, not sacrifice. Now he desires sacrifice in a sense, but that if it's just sacrifice without the mercy, he doesn't want it. 
and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Those, I don't want you to go through the motions. I want to see a heart of mercy. And Jesus picked up on this. And several times, he just went off on the Pharisees, right? The religious spiritual know-it-alls. In fact, he says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. So he quoted Hosea, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Not here to make the good people better. As we always say, I'm here to make the dead people live. So this is where the neighbor thing comes in. Because we gotta, get, we gotta get into the business, or gotta, get, God, we have to get into people's business if we're gonna really help them. If we're really gonna be a, a neighbor, what does that mean? It doesn't mean I just, I take care of my own life. It means I step into the world of another person. That's messy and that's difficult, right? But here's the, where, the, where this runs right up against our culture, right now, right up against our culture. Some of you need to think, think about this. Because this is the biggest barrier to the story. The question is, who do you identify with this in the story? Because right now, it's really popular to be the guy laying dead, the victim. You can't show compassion. You can't live compassionately. You can't really love your neighbor if you go through your life as the victim. And right now, it's just so cool to be someone who's oppressed. It's like the coolest thing. Like, I'm oppressed. I'm a victim. And everyone out, everyone, the world has, the world, it's so funny. My, my son's going to this thing called AZ Boy State. He's going for a week tomorrow to this, this like, it's this thing out in, in Flagstaff. It's like a um, camp thing or whatever. And they teach him about civics and whatnot. And, and, and they have these things where they do these like mock elections. And I, and I was reading a little handbook. And, and it's, it was so cool because it said, if you lose the election, don't, it was so cool. It said, if you lose, all, what you have to do is you have to realize that you, that uh, the, the candidates that, or the people that voted, they saw something in the other candidate that they didn't see in you. So learn from that. And then it said, don't get mad at the world. I thought, wow. If every young man could, could grab that advice and, and when he fails something, to not get mad at the world. Now this is not to say there's not oppressed people. There are oppressed people out there. And it's not to say you haven't been oppressed or you haven't been victimized. Maybe, and many of you probably have. And, and that's, that's a terrible, terrible thing. But let me talk to you right now. If you're ever going to get past that mentality and that event, part of it is going to be you moving yourself from that state of I'm dead on the road, helpless to how do I open my eyes and see the hurting people around me? And you move yourself to a different position in the story. So the Bible always talks about the poor and the oppressed, but it does so from the perspective of challenging us to look out for them. It doesn't walk around saying, you are poor and you are oppressed and you are a victim. The Bible nowhere says that. The Bible says that it's a broken and fallen and unfair world. And our job is to be able to, to, by the power of the Holy Spirit, get over some of these hurts and injustices and then turn our eyes towards injustices outside of us. And certainly if there are injustices that, that, that we share with others, that's, that's there as well. But so many of us are hamstrung because we feel so powerless because we can't do anything. No, that's not what the story is about. It's about you looking outside yourself and that re requires a certain degree of courage and maturity. So the issue isn't who is my neighbor, but the issue is am I a neighbor? 
Now, I was trying to think about what does this look like. So I'm going to give you several ideas or several thoughts to, to take with you. The, um, the Air Force, that I'm a reservist in the Air Force, and, and they do some cool stuff. And one of the things that they focus on a lot is, is these prevention programs to try to curb bad behavior, you know, like sexual assault and drug use and this kind of thing. And, and they're, they're kind of like, over the years, um, you know, they're, sometimes they're kind of, they don't seem to be very effective, you know, because they're like, well, don't do this, and don't do that, and don't do this, and don't do that. But they have a program they, they rolled out recently that I actually thought was pretty, pretty clever. And they, they use it in other organizations as well, but the Air Force kind of adopted this. And I don't know if the whole military is using it, but at least the Air Force is. And it's called the Green Dot Program. And the idea is, it's, it's a visual thought that, that we're, if you look at like a map, right, a, a region, and if you look at it like even where you are, and where you are, right around you, there could be, there could be bad things happening. You know, there, could be, there could be abuse, there could be assault, there could be victimization and violence, there could be, you know, whatever you want to call it. Evil things happening around you. And so that would be like a red zone, right? That's a this zone of danger, a zone of trial, a zone of trouble. What they challenge us to do is say, you know what? I'm going to take responsibility for my zone so that my zone will go from red to green. And green is like symbolic of safe, right? So it's kind of an interesting little concept, this green dot. So they say, well, wherever you are, there should be a green dot. Meaning wherever you are in your zone, if you're, if you're at the supermarket or at your house or you're at your place of business or you're out hanging out with friends, that area you should take responsibility for as much as you possibly can to shut down behavior that's, that's, that's wrong or evil, right? This is pretty cool. Now what they don't really understand, or maybe they did, is they actually took a page out of God's playbook. Because what they really want is justice, peace, and love. And the kingdom of God is all about zones of justice, peace, and love. To quote some guy that wrote about this. And what the whole idea is that, that if I have the spirit of God living in me, now when I, when I look at what it means to be a good Samaritan, or what, I, what it means to actually engage, it doesn't mean just to look for the people that are physically laying dead on the road. It means that I live in this world and I look around for hurting people and injustices and difficulties and challenges. And I say, that's not going to be in my zone. And I'm going to, to try to work and have my eyes open so that wherever my zone is, wherever my area is, whatever influence I've been given, I can actually use my resources just like the Samaritan did it, of the wine and the animal and the denarii, the, uh, the, the money that he used to give him to, that I use my own resources to be able to, to curb and help and alleviate suffering that exists around me. It's pretty smart. So really all that, all that is is kind of a, a secular way of implementing a kingdom concept, which is things operating under the rule of God. And so if you want to begin to see yourself differently, start to see yourself as someone who bears that with the power of the Holy Spirit and say, God, open my eyes and help me see where there are people laying dead. And if you're wondering about how in the world or where in the world that might be, let me give you just one example. This is just one, and I, and I, I don't mean this as, this isn't the point of the sermon, but this is important. We have a fantastic student ministry here at Compass Church for junior high and high school. And like any church that's trying to reach our community, we don't just have, you know, nice kids from nice families that attend our church here. Um, you know, where everything's going perfect, right? Not that everything's going perfect with us anyway, but you know what I'm saying, right? It's not like this idea where all of, we just have, we need to have a place for our high school and junior high kids to go where they won't be bored, right? That's not what we do. 
It's actually a ministry that reaches out to all kinds of kids from high schools on junior highs from all over the place. And to be honest, a lot of our students live in household where, households where the parents, they don't go to any church. They drop them off and then they leave. And oftentimes, those kids in particular, although it's really our, anybody, but oftentimes it's those particular students that whose lives can tend to be in a lot of chaos. And some of these stories, quite frankly, would break your heart. I, I hesitate to share a few that, that Mike told me because I don't want to, uh, you know, let out someone's secrecy or, you know, their, um, violate any confidentiality or anything like that. But it's kind of a common, I shouldn't say common, but it's more than often than not that there'll be some situation where the home is supposed to be a safe environment, right? And yet the high school or junior high kid will go to a home that's not safe. There's times they'll have to call the police on their own parents. There's times that, that one of our staff will be told something. And it's mandatory report. Because what's been shared is just that bad. And we look at young people. And we go, ah, these kids, they're just running around their phones. And all they care about is Snapchat and Instagram. We got kids right on the other side of that wall in our student ministry room. And they are laying on the ground left for dead. They got no one in their life who can guide them. Because the very people in their life who are supposed to tell them where they came from, why they're here, and where they're going, they don't even know themselves. They're bounced around from house to house. And they don't have a clue. And all they know in their 15 or 16 or 17 or 13-year-old mind is what they see on the news. Show up to school and I hope some, I hope the kid that no one likes doesn't bring a gun. I don't think we grew up with that constant reminder. Middle school and high school. And they're coming here. We're reaching them. And yet, if you talk to our High school and middle school staff, they're dying for volunteers, for adults to show up and hang out and just be an encouragement, to build a relationship, be a listening ear. I came from a great family. I did. My parents both moved we grew up in L.A. They moved to the Northwest for many years, and they've come back here and moved to Phoenix, and they attend this church. It's kind of weird sometimes. But it's awesome. We have a great relationship, my parents and I. Yet I, um, and I credit my parents for their great example as godly people, but I think I told you my story. You know, like, spent some time in the back of an LAPD police car and, you know, some other things. And while I credit my parents so much, it was guys like Mark Owens and Francis Chan and Steve Noel and Dave Cunningham. Just ordinary guys. Dave Cunningham was a cabinet maker. Steve Noel was a real estate agent. Volunteer. Go to Steve Noel's house at 
6 o'clock in the morning, every Monday morning. He'd have his golden retriever on the, on the, on the ground. And, and uh, sometimes there'd be five guys. Sometimes there'd be just a couple guys. Sometimes there'd be eight guys. Usually right after summer camp, there was like eight or nine guys, you know. I want to get their lives right with God, and then they'd show up for a while. And it's kind of the ebb and flow. And there were times that I just didn't know what to think about life. But I could talk to them. And they helped me more than they thought they did. And they put up with a lot. You know, I remember, I remember Steve was having dinner at his house with his family and they had some guests over and it was like 5.30 in the afternoon and we thought it would be funny if we teepeed his house. And it was really windy. And so there was like four of us and we were just standing there with these toilet paper rolls and the wind was blowing them into these long... And, you know, so here we are TPing this guy down, and he's, well, he's looking out the window. He's got guests over, and he's like, what are these idiots doing in my front yard? It was still light outside, but we just thought it would be funny, you know? And, and, uh, and I remember then he, um, he was like, you guys are, you know, but he's still like, a lot of people would just go leave and never come back. Um, he, he thought it was ridiculous, but he still accepted us. I remember we, we went to prom, and he had a big Winnebago, and we went 14 of us, and we took his Winnebago to prom, and he drove, and it was the coolest thing. Why do I tell you these stories? Because, I don't know, there's, I don't think I was a beat up kid on the side of the road in my, in my own situation, but on any, on any week, Tuesday night or Wednesday night, there's young men and women, and they need someone to talk to. So, I don't ever like to present a problem without a solution. So here's three solutions. Three emails. Just pick one. You know, I mean, not everybody has to do this. Believe me, if you don't, if you, if you sincerely, you know, like, I don't want to hang out with high school, that's fine. But understand, understand this. If you're like, I'm too busy, I got, I, I'm, my life is so chaotic, I'm not good enough, I, I can't, I don't want to go there, just just know that's an example of there's, there's people laying there that the world has kicked and you're like, just be the priest, man. Just be the Levite. You know? Don't, I, that sounds so bad. I'm not trying to beat you up for that. I'm not. I'm just saying, but because here's the part that bothers me is I know what that did for me. And, and as we're, as we're developing our church and our church is growing, and I mean, we've got a lot of people here on Saturday. Sunday's getting ridiculous. We're talking about what do we do? Do we add more services? Cause that's weird with timing. Do we, we set up more chairs? Do we just like, you know, do we spend $4 million and build another building out there? Or do we just say, forget it and move? I don't know what, but, we, but there's some, there's like, how do we continue to accommodate more growth? But as we're doing that, we have got to be a church that is like heart deep in people that are hurting. And that's one segment. There are others. And they're right here, man. That's all I'm saying. Mike does high school. Andrew does middle school. Colin does children's ministry. You see their emails up there. You don't have to, doesn't it? Just write them, hey, I was listening to Pastor Tim's sermon. I'm just interested. There's no obligation. I, I'm listening to Pastor Tim. Or you just put it on your card at the end. Not everybody has to do it. But, but the Holy Spirit's knocking on some of your doors. And if your heart's going, yeah, see, he's talking to you because you know that you could do something like that. I know it might be a little bit scary, but we've got to develop a culture here where our, where our young people, like they have like this beautiful nurturing thing, you know, from, the, from, from wise and capable and willing 
adults. That's just one example, guys. There are so many others. Andrew's gonna talk about something we're gonna be doing in the local community. But, but, that, but it's, it's just like, it's like a slow pitch over the plate, man. It's an easy one. It's an easy one because it's already in-house. Colin does children's ministry. Obviously, you know, that's almost like a little bit different because of, of the nature of things, but that's still the same way. And the difference that you can make in a person's life, that's real, solid, clear application that I'm giving you. It's not just like, go out and help a stranger. Strangers are fine. I'm saying we got people right here. So, you know the other point of the story, and then I'm going to be done. We're all bleeding. See, all of us are bleeding. We're all bleeding. Here's what happens. When Jesus tells a story about the Good Samaritan, you know who else, you know what else the point he's trying to make? He's like, look, man, you, you, uh, you Pharisee, you lawyer, you top of the heap, there are people out there who are broken. And you walk by. And the other guys walk by. But the outsider, the unexpected, the sleeper cares. And you know who he was talking about? He was talking about himself. He was talking about himself. The guy you never think. The guy you're trying to trick. The guy you're trying to the guy you're trying to pull a fast one on, the guy that you end up crucifying is the one who gives all that he has because his heart is full of compassion. Guys, we tell you over and over and over again, this is the heart of God. And Jesus says, just go do what I do. You want to be with me? You want to have a relationship with me? You want to have fellowship with me? You want to know me? You want to commiserate for all of eternity with the God of the universe, do what I do. The entrails, the guts, pity, heart, love, care, and get beyond yourself. Let's make it a beautiful day in the neighborhood. It's our neighborhood. Let's own it. Let's pray together. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, for a moment I want you to respond. If you're here and you're like, you know what, I've never seen God that way. But God does see us. And care for us deeply. So if you're here today and you'd like to be able to receive the gift of grace, just right where you are to say, God, I'm bleeding. I'm hurting. I need you. I'm poor. I'm powerless. And I need your grace and your forgiveness. I need you to raise me up from the dead. I need you to give me a new start. So today I turn my life over to you. And maybe if you do that, 
you become a person then who develops the capacity to not just speak the words, but actually live the life like God, the God who saved you and me, who cares for the poor and the powerless. And you can sing along with us. Thanks for joining us today. Why not ask God to change your life so you can go and change your world for Him? To find out more about our church online, go to www.compasschurch.info and we'll see you next time.